First uh, Samuel in chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 3. And it says, uh, And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. Um, so if you can put yourself in this uh, situation, if you were with the children of Israel, you see this man coming out who's uh, six cubits and a span, um, much taller than anyone you've, you've ever met, um, and obviously a, a warrior uh, who's coming up to defy the armies of God. And, uh, and if you're thinking naturally, well, what weapon would you choose against someone uh, like this who's armed in this way? Um, we'll just uh, skip the time down to verse 38. And of course, at first they did try to arm David, who was only a, a young man at this stage, probably, we don't know the exact age, probably around the age of 15 or so, and it says, And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head, and he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. So the best that uh, Israel had naturally, the best armor, the best sword, uh, wasn't suitable for this, this challenge. Uh, and in verse 40 it says, And he took his staff in his hand, and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a scrip, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the, the very last thing that you'd probably expect to bring to a battle like this is a, a staff, which doesn't generally have any sharp edges, it's a just a blunt object, uh, and smooth stones, again, another blunt object. And they wouldn't have been very large because uh, he had to sling them with a sling, um, if he was only 15 years old, he may have not even been fully grown, uh, David. And uh, so they couldn't have been all that large. They must have been pretty small. And it's not like he had a, had a catapult to, to wield them. It was, a, it was a sling. So it was only his own strength that he was able to wield this thing. It, wasn't, it was probably the most basic form of warfare you could fight, the most basic form of technology in, uh, in weaponry. Uh, and yet, as we read in verse 45... Uh, this is just David's attitude, and it said, Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defined. Uh, this day will the Lord de deliver me uh, thee into thy, mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the, of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, uh, for the battle uh, is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And so uh, David recognized that uh, the, the best of, the, uh, the Israel's, uh, of, Israel's, of Israel's technology, their weapons, their armor, uh, wasn't going to be good enough, and uh, only through God would that victory be won. And he manifests that victory, or as we read, uh, verse 48, and it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. 
And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon the face of the earth, his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. And, uh, and so through the, uh, through the stone, uh, that, that David slung, uh, it was the, the victory that God, uh, created was manifest through this stone. And, uh, of course, we know David ended up taking Goliath's sword and, uh, and cutting his head off. Uh, but through, through this stone was, was how the victory was won and, and God had his hand upon that. And there's a pattern throughout the scriptures. Um, it's interesting that my auntie Jill mentioned, uh, the rock in her testimony, uh, cause I'm giving a talk on, on rocks and stones. And there's a pattern throughout the scriptures of, uh, and rocks or stones being used to demonstrate that God is present, uh, whether as a, a witness or to show that his judgment's being carried out or that he defends his people. Uh, the Lord uses stones as a, as a symbolic way to show that he's present. Uh, we'll go back to Genesis 28 for the first time this is mentioned in the Scriptures. And this was a time, um, I'm just going to read a bit more, but maybe I'll just paraphrase a bit. So Jacob, uh, who became renamed Israel later on, um, he was sent uh, out of the land and, and back to um, where his, uh, I guess, his extended family were to, to take a wife. And uh, I guess he would have been a little bit unsure going into this land, and, and he, he had a dream, and, and he saw the, the ladder going up to heaven and angels ascending and descending. Um, maybe we'll pick it up in verse 13. And it said, And behold, so Genesis eighteen thirteen, Behold, the Lord stood, sorry, 28, 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee, until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, and in the margin that means the house of God. Uh, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So uh, it's the first reference of, of uh, I guess, any kind of altar being built, and uh, and uh, it's uh, out of stone. Um, and it represented the presence of God. Jacob realized that uh, God's in this place. He's given me this dream. He's given me these promises. And uh, I guess out of, out of in worship and, and uh, in, his, in his fear, uh, he, he decided to build this altar out of stone. And, and it became customary for people of God to, to build these altars throughout the time. And uh, you might think of them as being kind of like an idol, but uh, they were very different because they weren't carved. They were were set in place kind of as they were lying naturally. 
and uh, they they built them up, and and they wouldn't use any tool against them, and uh, and they were left unchanged as God had left them, and uh, similar to what we heard in the testimony, uh, we don't want to change what God has done. We we allow His word to go out, and we allow it to to remain unchanged, and we don't try and massage it into this modern time. We we allow it to uh, do its own thing, and um, there's something here where it said that. Uh, and Jacob recognized that well, God will be with me, and, and if, he, if he's going to keep me in this way, then he's going to give me food and raiment. He, he recognized that uh, he didn't need to strive for those things that God would provide. Um, we'll go across to Leviticus now in chapter 24. So I mentioned also stones being used uh, as a form of judgment. And uh, in the Old Testament law, there were a a number of things that you could uh, be executed for, and the standard form of execution was was stoning. Um, there's an example here in Leviticus 24 and in verse 10, and it said, uh, and this was kind of the first, um, I guess, test of the law uh, in a way, and it said, uh, and the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp, and the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him unto Moses, uh, and his mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward or in custody that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. Um, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that has cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregations stone him. So uh, I guess this, this test of the law, they'd, they'd received all these uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of laws, and, and this was this kind of test to say, well, are we going to uphold the law? And they, and they brought him to Moses, and I guess kind of were looking to see, well, is, is the law going to be upheld? Is there a penalty going to be um, executed to this, this person? Um, and he... Uh, he he had the Lord speak to him and say, "This is what needs to happen." And and through the the stoning of of these this person, um, it was it was symbolic that God's judgment was being enacted by the people. Um, I find it interesting that uh, there were times when Moses and Aaron were nearly stoned by the people, and yet God never allowed it to happen uh, because it wasn't according to His law and judgment that the the children of Israel, when they were rebelling wanting to stone Moses and Aaron or, or um, other people of God, generally God didn't allow it to happen because it wasn't his will. Uh, Joshua 24, another example of a stone to represent God's presence. So this is later on after uh, they've gone through the wilderness and there's this renewal of the covenant when Joshua is the leader of, of Israel. Um, and... Basically, he, he reminds the people of the transgressions of their uh, fathers uh, and their, the people that went before them and those that didn't make it into the promised land. And, and Joshua basically gives them a warning and, and uh, says, this is what's happened, and, but if you serve the Lord with all, all your heart, then the Lord will, uh, I guess, sustain you. And, and the, the uh, children of Israel said, well, uh, we, we will. And, and, and Joshua said, you, you cannot do this thing because God's a jealous God, just to paraphrase. Um, in, we'll pick it up in verse 21. Uh, and the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto your, the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. 
And now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. And Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest you deny your Lord, your God. And so the stone, again, represented God's presence, and it was there uh, as a witness of the agreement or the covenant between Israel and God. And, and as I was reading this, um, I, I just got thinking, well, I wonder if that stone is, is still there today, um, all these thousands of years later. It probably is. Um, it takes a lot to move a stone. It takes a lot to destroy a stone. Uh, and it's, it, I imagine it still probably is there. Um, all throughout the history of, of them going into the promised land and, and settling in the promised land, there's these examples of stones being used as reminders. And um, the words of the covenant were also written in, in stones that were placed on the banks of the Jordan River. Um, and I used to imagine that the Jordan River was kind of on the border of Israel and you'd cross it and you'd go into the land, but the, the Jordan River actually ran through the heart of Israel. So if you were ever traveling, you'd, you'd, you'd probably have to cross the river at some point. And you would see these stones and you'd be reminded of the covenant. Um, there's some other examples that we won't turn to to the time of, of rocks or stones being used uh, to show God's God was there or his deliverance or the, his uh, protection. Um, and uh, the, the examples of uh, Moses when he struck the rock. Um, he did it twice. He was only meant to do it the first time. The second time he was meant to speak to the rock. But each time he struck the rock and it provided water for an entire nation, and, and we know God supplies our every need. Um, there was another time when Israel were at war, and uh, they were only kind of prevailing over the enemy when Moses held his hands uh, up to the Lord, up to God, and uh, he had a couple of people place a stone underneath him and, and hold his hands um, steady. And, uh, and of course, the stone was a, a support to him, and when our natural strength fails, God provides a strength in us that we perhaps didn't know that we had because it comes from the Spirit. Uh, there's other times when God's people hid in caves or they hid in the cleft of the rock. And, uh, and there's safety when we dwell near to the Lord. And uh, if you ever look through the Psalms, um, I did a quick search on the words rock and stones and things like that. 23 out of the 150 Psalms mention rocks or stones. So every, every six or so Psalms you come to, you'll find David or the other psalmist mentioning uh, the Lord being their rock or, or stones. Uh, we'll go across to Matthew chapter 16. There was a disciple that was uh, given a nickname of, of Peter, uh, which means a, a small stone. But uh, it was actually the people take this scripture and decide that he was the first pope. But there was a, another rock that was mentioned in this scripture. So Matthew 16 and, and in verse 13. And it says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, 
but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also, uh, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So uh, Jesus came, I guess, and recognized when Peter recognized that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Uh, Jesus was saying, "Well, upon that, that's what I'm going to build my church." Uh, the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the the Anointed Son of God and and the Savior, and Jesus was was that rock. He and he would build the church. Um, and it says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You get this this image of the, a church that will stand the test of time. Um, if you want something to last for a long time, if you if you carve it into stone, uh, it generally will last a long time. And and the Ten Commandments were were literally written in stone uh, because it was there to to last for a long. It was there to last throughout the the Old Testament. And uh, and the church that that Jesus built is a, a church of stone that's going to last the test of time. It's going to uh, be strengthened, and it's not going to be, uh, I guess, threatened by the gates of hell. Uh, we'll go across to John and chapter eight. So, if you remember, we talked about stones being used to execute God's judgment, and uh, there were some Jews that had this great idea of trying to. I guess, trick Jesus into casting judgment upon someone who, by all intents and purposes, probably did deserve judgment. Um, but as we read, they probably all deserved judgment that were there. So John chapter 8 and in verse 4, and it said, They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? I find that interesting that they say, well, Moses said this, because it was actually God that, that said that. But it says, that, And this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him, that Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where art those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Um, always, I wonder how Jesus said that, whether he said it pretty sarcastically. Where, where are your accusers? So, as if he's expecting all these people to have hung around. Um, and he looks up and there's no one there. Um, but Jesus was the only one who was qualified to cast that first stone, and uh, and he was the one who showed mercy. He was the one who showed grace. And this was a new way of, of doing things. Um, Jesus as the Christ or as the rock, uh, this was the church, the kind of church that he wanted to build, one of bringing sinners to repentance, one of mercy, one of grace, and not one of, of judgment. And if uh, if casting stones was representative of carrying of the people carrying out God's judgment, Jesus refusing to cast the stone was representative of his rejection of the way that the people had twisted the judgment of God to their own advantage. So uh, God's judgment, of course, was was perfect and it was was fair and it was it was correct. But uh, people had taken his judgment, they'd taken his law, and they twisted it to suit themselves and made it political. They'd made it something where they were uh, pretending they were own, all without sin themselves, and they they twisted it and and used it to I guess further themselves. But Jesus took it and and created a new way of of mercy and and 
and I, I just got thinking, well, perhaps um, the, for reasons that I've mentioned, that uh, when Jesus was was executed, of course we know that that was that was prophesied that uh, that he would lose his life and that he would rise again and and pour out the Holy Spirit. But the method of his his execution uh, could have easily been a stoning. Um, because throughout the Old Testament, throughout this time, the standard form of execution that was carried out by the Jews was stoning, and it was only this very short period when Jesus died that, uh, that the Romans were carrying out these crucifixions on the Jews. Um, and uh, so perhaps that why that was why that the the form of execution wasn't to be a stoning that God ordained it to be that uh, a, di- a different way because the stoning was often representative of God's judgment being cast down and, and Jesus wasn't judged of God. It was the people who decided that he needed to lose his life. Um, just quote in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 25, and it talks about making an altar of stone and it says, And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone or cut stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. And uh, and and Jesus' word is is kind of like the stone. It's kind of like the altar. And uh, if people start taking a, I guess a, a tool, they, they start trying to chip away at the word, or they they change bits, or they take bits out, or add to it, then they've polluted the word. It's no longer God's word. It's something else. Um, I liked what Jill said in her testimony that if we just chip bits away at the rock, then we end up with sand, uh, and we take the the rock as it is as a whole. Um, so we don't need to fashion the word of God according to the way that we think it should be or the way that it suits us. Um, it remains unchanged just as Jesus uh, left it for us, the way that he um, purposed it to be. We'll go across to First Peter and chapter 2. We'll finish here. Of course, there's so many. I was actually blown away when I searched these keywords in a in a Bible program of just how many mentions of rocks, stones uh, there are in the Bible. It's, it just keeps coming up over and over, and you can talk about things like foundations and and and, uh, and holding close to the rock and, and things like that. Um, but this is just a quick sn- snippet of, uh, of how stones can be used to represent God's presence in our lives. Um, so First Peter in chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 1. And it says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be you have tasted the Lord is gracious. And it says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God and precious, you also as lively or living stones are built up to a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. It talks about the uh, the head of the corner, and uh, if you if you want to know where the I guess the where all the tension is in a building, it's it's in the corner, and it's um, it's 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 where all the the weight of the building is is held up. And and we make Jesus our chief cornerstone. We make him 
I guess, the foundation and we build our life uh, on top of that and we build it according to the way that he'd have us to do it. And he sets the pattern for the way we live our life. And and if you have a building that you start off following the foundation, uh, the first few, I guess, rows of bricks, and then you start going off into another direction on a on a on something other than a 90-degree angle, then you start not following the pattern and you end up with, with uh, I guess, a, a weakness in the building. But if you continue on that, that 90-degree angle following the pattern of the cornerstone, then, of course, you, you have a strong building. Um, and this is the position that we're put in now in verse 9, that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, or it's, in the margin it says uh, his own special people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so, of course, we've been called into this church uh, that uh, that Jesus brought about a new way, a way of mercy. Uh, we we see uh, him as the uh, the cornerstone, and we're made living rocks within that church, that spiritual building, spiritual house, as it mentions in verse five. Um, so that's what uh, that's what the Lord has for us. That we uh, allow Him to strengthen us. He's our strength and our comfort, and uh, our presence in our life. We'll leave it there. Amen. 